Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk about Afghanistan. The longest war the U.S. has ever waged shows no signs of abating. There was just an encouraging three-day ceasefire for Eid, but moves to extend the ceasefire were rejected by the Taliban. Just today, an Afghan official says that 11 people, including six civilians, were killed in a U.S. drone attack in northeastern Nuristan province. With me is Najla Ayube, and she is a uh, human rights activist, an attorney, and a former judge in Afghanistan. She's founder and executive board member of the Women's Regional Network of Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Sri Lanka. Thanks for joining us again, Najla. Uh, thank you. Uh, good afternoon. I wonder, you know, a lot of people were encouraged by the ceasefire over Eid because it showed the Taliban could hold a ceasefire. There were questions about whether or not they could hang it together if if, if they decided to have a ceasefire. Um, was there anything encouraging about the ceasefire to you? Um, actually, to be honest, uh, first of all, it's uh, it's a uh, it was a very uh, optimistic um, period for Afghan people, particularly um, uh, for the civilians, uh, because of the all of the attacks are happening over civilians. So uh, it was a kind of mixed feeling uh, between the people, among the people, particularly in this ceasefire, and, uh, and particularly in regard to uh, that the Taliban came into cities, like thousands of Taliban came into cities city, particularly in Kabul, 2000 Taliban came into city. So this was one of the uh, one of the uh, kind of uh, historic time uh, between Afghan government and also Taliban in the past uh, 60, uh, 16 years that this was happening and the people were, uh, first of all, they were ha- uh, they were actually celebrating and they were happy and um, just to see that uh, it might end this ceasefire may end to uh, have a peace, but at the same time there was a fear uh, among the people. It, uh, uh, that was one of the one of the issues that the people were thinking that they may get uh, uh, opportunity from this uh, momentum, and they reorganize and they uh, uh, come back for the um, summer attacks, which is um, obviously uh, most of the time it's happening in Afghanistan. And plus, we are having we are having uh, ahead of our election. So this these two things were really a huge worry among the people and still people are concerning that most of these um, uh, Taliban who came into the cities, a uh, f- uh, uh, number of them left back to their, uh, I mean, uh, front lines, but uh, some of them, they still in the cities. But at the same time, the people are concerning that they they never been checked uh, security-wise from security perspective. They may brought lots of guns in the cities and and um, uh, they may start to have a, a, a certain strategic uh, areas you to know, be attacked. Uh, now, from the Afghan government's point of view, the ceasefire were supposed to be breadcrumbs to peace negotiations to try to get uh, the Taliban to agree to negotiate. And on that front, it seems uh, like that was not successful. I mean, what do you think about that aspect of it? Um, actually, um, I appreciate uh, uh, the efforts that the Afghan government is making. Um, but this is, uh, from my perspective as an activist and uh, living, I mean, uh, growing up in the country and seeing all of these uh, different periods and learning from historic uh, uh, point of view, uh, 
it is a very good efforts from the government but this is a kind of uh, i'm calling it uh, uh, it's a one side love story you know it's it, it is uh, it could be uh, not only with the taliban but also can be um uh, negotiated and also can be consulted with the people who are within the government working and they were the one that they were fighting with the with the taliban in the past um i mean uh, uh, decades so this is uh, one effort that it may end to the uh, to the bigger peace process but still uh, uh this is i don't think it's enough because we ha- uh, the afghan government should uh, have work Uh, with the Taliban and also with some people who have a very historic grievances with the Taliban in the past, um, uh, I mean, uh, number of years. And, and the Taliban wants to negotiate with the U.S. government directly. Um, and the, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo kind of shows a little f- more flexibility than in the past. But, I mean, that's not on the table, really, for the Taliban. You know, uh um in in regard to the historic negotiation peace negotiations in afghanistan and also in the region particularly uh this has been the uh, the uh, the negative part of the peace processes that in afghanistan that they never got to stability because of the uh lots of pressure uh, from international communities particularly the bigger players like players like us because these terrorist groups and these uh, terrorist movements they are uh, somehow spoiled because they don't they know that if they're um, uh, going to do the negotiation with the bigger players they will gain a lot what they gain from afghan government they may gain only um, a political uh, few political seats or few, few political um, maybe uh, uh, positions in the government but it's still from financial perspective from uh, from political um, negotiation the uh, release of some of the uh, uh, their leaders from the uh, prisons uh, not only in, uh, within afghan uh, government prisons but also some other uh, uh, prisons that it was uh, of course in the past but we never know that there are still prisons that uh, they may they may be uh, negotiating this one to be uh, to to release some of their uh, bigger figures so right. this is somehow uh, it's a very complex situation i'm talking with najala ayubi she's a human rights activist lawyer and former judge in afghanistan we're talking about uh, recent developments in afghanistan um one of the things that is really interesting is um the the uh, i don't know there it sounds like they're um breeding these peace marches that are going on in afghanistan uh the first one was from helmand to kabul and there are people camped out right now in front of the un compound in kabul they they're pro- they're moving around to different um power players and this has attracted a lot of attention there's copycat marches going on around the country um and it, this seems to be a real civilian led movement for peace the taliban came out and started criticizing it and saying it was a us sponsored activity um how do you react to the this peace march movement um actually this is uh, um again i'm 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 very optimistic and and i think if if things are happening at the grassroots level i don't think i mean if if the grassroots people grassroots level people are deciding to to do something in regard to the war and not fight and not support the um the terrorist groups or 
or or the bigger players. So they are the one that they can really bring the peace. But still, uh, there are uh, lots of confrontation. And I don't know if if anybody uh, is reporting that one because there was a there is a still a counter uh, counter peace march uh, going on. Like there is another march going countering the peace march. The war march, is, I imagine. <laughs> war march, exactly. It's like, like particularly from the Northern Alliance, uh, the people who are supporting the Northern Alliance, they are uh, they are trying to just uh, tell uh, the Afghan government, the Taliban, and the other uh, groups that they are not tolerating them because they were the one that they were uh, they are uh, fighting every day, and particularly even after uh, immediately after the ceasefire, there was a two big attacks, one in Jalalabad and also one in Kabul, which lots of civilians have been killed. So this is something that, uh, from my perspective, uh, again, I'm emphasizing on that part that if we are going to come to the peace process, we should not ignore these sort of uh, movements against the peace, uh, the peace march or the peace movement. So I think this is uh, somehow the leadership in Afghanistan, uh, the government leadership and also the international community may be able to uh, put together these uh, groups and make sure that they are um, they are friends with each other, not only Afghan government and Taliban. I, you know, it's, it seems like this whole uh, idea of peace marches is something uh, that's a new. Is that a new factor into the the equation here? Does that um, does that change things up? Does that put pressure on on both sides? Um, I think. Uh from my uh, from my experience in the past uh, this is exactly yes uh, uh, most of the people who are within the government if they wanted to keep the power or if they wanted to be in the power they have to accept what is happening in the bigger picture so and also from Taliban perspective because most of Taliban the Taliban are not attractive anymore to to most of the um, I mean countries or uh, players that they are supporting them financially and and equipping them with a weapon and staff. So that's why most of these uh, Taliban, they are joining the ISIS now. It's not only the Taliban issue now. This is Al-Qaeda is still in Afghanistan. Um, uh, their movement, I mean, they are not they are not visible as they were before, but still they are there. But also um, uh, ISIS is growing uh, faster. So this is somehow when we say, OK, this group is coming within the government or within and they're uh, joining the peace process. But what will happen to these bigger, bigger, uh, another big issue that these uh, other terrorists, like ISIS is going to grow up and they are, most of the Taliban is joining them. So this is also another issue to be added to the situation now. I'm talking with Najala Ayubi. She's a human rights activist, former judge in Afghanistan, and we're talking about the situation there. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about gender identity around the world and our series on that. Today we'll be talking about Japan. Stay with us. I wanted to, um, you mentioned ISIS and um, the, the estimates are that there are 2,000, 2,500 ISIS fighters in Afghanistan, but they seem to cause an inordinate amount of damage. And the U.S. is, you know, determined and focused on them a lot. Um, the U.S. has been dropping a lot of bombs in Afghanistan, lots more than uh, previously, three times more than uh, tw- in 2017 than in 2016. Uh, 
what is can we the US is really doing things they're trying to bomb their way into ending ISIS or something what do you make of this strategy um from my perspective uh, i know that the us uh, is uh, trying to approach the uh, or solve the situation through the military military uh, strategy but again um i think we have to think who is supporting these terrorist group particularly the isis why we are not talking about those people particularly more pressure on um uh, pakistan and uh, iran of course uh, saudi arabia in and there are other groups that they are particularly supporting the isis grow in afghanistan because most of them have been uh, i mean kicked out from syria from iraq but most of them are now moving to afghanistan so this is a very good uh, i'm what i'm uh, what i'm saying it's a it's a it's a good uh, safe haven for them to come and and stay and start fighting but who they, uh, who they are supporting but i don't think the um, only military solution will be um, a good solution i think uh, we have to and i think uh, my suggestion to the recommendation to the us government would be that they have to more put more pressure on the people who are financially supporting these groups because if they are if you're cutting their finances i'm sure that they will they will not have that much power I noticed that the new U.S. commander in uh, Afghanistan agrees with you. He testified before a Senate committee and said military pressure alone is not uh, sufficient to achieve a political solution to the Afghan conflict. I can't guarantee you a timeline or an end date. Exactly. Exactly. um, There's... um, what do you have any advice for the U.S. then about what to do here? Because uh, obviously we've been at this for 17 years and... Um, it seems like this is, uh, you know, not going anywhere correctly. Um, what's, what's, what advice do you have for the U.S.? Um, I think I appreciate as an Afghan uh, uh, who we have the support from the U.S. government and U.S. people. And particularly I appreciate the, the soldiers that they are fighting in Afghanistan and were fighting and they lost their bloods and, and, and also um, the lives. Uh, but I think uh, as a human rights activist, I don't think the, the, um, the military solution will be the only one. Um, from my perspective, if we open the dialogue uh, between the groups, not only and also uh, try to um, uh, make, uh, I mean, uh, as I mentioned earlier, cut off and pressurize the people who are bigger players, like China is playing a big role. Um, Saudi Arabia, while Saudi Arabia is a very, a very big fan or a big, uh, a big support uh, of the U.S. government, the, I'm sure there is way how they, can, uh, how they can talk to them and make sure that they are not supporting these groups. Look, uh, this is one, one thing. And second, I think uh, most of the Afghans are really tired and we are really tired tired of war. But I'm sure that there are other players that within the Afghan community that they can find uh, the, the natural people, the, the, the uh, what it's called, the very um, uh, impartial people that they could uh, facilitate this sort of 
processes of the dialogue between the different ethnicities within Afghanistan and also uh, within the region. Um, I think this is this would be one uh, one of my uh, uh, recommendations. And plus, um, I think uh, most of the most of the people who lost their lives and, and their beloved ones, uh, they're really looking for transitional justice to be happen in Afghanistan. If we don't have that sort of staff, I don't think we are going to end, end up or having peace because their grievance is so deep in the 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 absence the 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 absence of the truth and reconciliation is so uh, lacking in Afghanistan that we 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 think that all of these groups that they are coming they will definitely uh, use the opportunity and also the vacuum that there is uh, because of all of these grievances that's why uh, I think uh, the US can be, uh, play a big role of uh, putting the pressure on on different um, sides. You know, right now, uh, the insurgents have control of more territory in Afghanistan than ever before. And they have, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't recognize how strong their institutions are in some of these places. I was just reading a report about uh, Afghan institutions in their territory and, uh, you know, stumbled into the education section and they have um, schools and uh, all the rest. Uh, and they seem to have this um, – they adopted the UNESCO philosophy of education for all. Um, uh, but then girls don't go to school much after um, uh, um, grade four or six because they pull them out because of puberty essentially. There are no, no schools after that. Um, how do you react to the Taliban um, as a structural entity like now? Is Do they have – have they built something um, around the country that is um, not so easy to move anymore? Um, I think uh, the the Taliban is not the only group that they are establishing these sort of uh, infrastructures or or uh, or uh, structures, uh, uh, community structures in in Afghanistan. There are other uh, extremist groups that they are building, like we have. Uh, I don't think Afghanistan ever had the number of madrasas that now we have in Afghanistan, all over Afghanistan. So we have many of them that they are uh, even producing extremists uh, from within Afghanistan. They are working uh, like Salafis uh, working uh, in the north of Afghanistan, and they are trying to just make lots of, uh, uh, particularly even we never had a, um, uh, extremist women or extremist females uh, madrasas in Afghanistan, which now we have particularly in, in Kunduz, where uh, two times in 2015-16 they fall uh, under the Taliban. So we have lots of groups that you're working in north of Afghanistan. But still, yes, uh, Taliban in the areas where they have power, uh, they have madrasas and they uh, they they send uh, particularly, basically the boys are going to the madrasas, not the girls. So this is a big issue uh, on that part. But uh, uh, looking on the government side, uh, I think the Afghan government also failed to fight corruption and uh, impunity uh, in Afghanistan. So that's also another point that the uh, Ministry of Education, they are having lots of education, establishing lots of uh, schools and establishing, uh, getting funding from different donors. But still, there are most of them are ghost, uh, ghost hmm. schools. 
instead of the actual schools. Najala Ayubi is a human rights activist, a lawyer, and a former judge in Afghanistan. She's founder and executive board member of the Women's Regional Network of Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Sri Lanka. Thanks a lot for joining us and catching us up on what's been going on in Afghanistan. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll continue our series on gender identity around the world, and we'll talk about Japan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week we're having a series of conversations about transgender rights and cultures around the world. Taking us to Japan today is Worldview's Anna Waters. In Japan, transgender people who want to be recognized by the government according to their gender identity must be sterilized, a practice condemned by the World Health Organization and human rights groups around the world. Activists have had success reforming some similar laws in Europe and Latin America over the past few years, and there have been renewed calls to end the practice in Japan. To discuss the law and its impact on trans people in Japan, we're joined by Fumino Sugiyama. He's a co-chair of Tokyo Rainbow Pride and author of the memoir Double Happiness, which hopes to educate Japanese people about the transgender community. Fumino-san, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. We're also joined by Kanae Doi, the Japan Director of Human Rights Watch. Thank you very much for having me. In Japan, there are many different hoops to jump through to get the government to recognize trans people by the gender they identify with. You have to be unmarried and without children, diagnosed with gender dysphoria, fully medically transitioned, and sterilized, so all functioning reproductive organs have been removed. Kanae-san, could you tell us how this process came to be so extensive and what the rationale is behind having a law like this? Yes. Japan introduced the Special Act on Gender Identity Disorder in 2003, when the public was still not very much educated on the rights of transgender people. And then at that time, the introduction of this law was seen as one step forward for the transgender people who wants to be legally recognized. However, more than 20 years has passed, and then this law is obviously violates human rights, particularly for transgender people who wants to be legally recognized to undergo forced sterilization. So it is condemned very widely. Are there a lot of other countries that have similar laws? There are still uh, many countries who require transgender people to go uh, sterilization. However, more and more countries which doesn't uh, require such sterilization. Fumino-san, how has this law affected you personally? I would imagine that it's created a set of difficult choices for you. Right. 
取る手術を受けたけれども、I went on surgery on my breast, so now I don't have、uh, my breast. And then now I get a hormone injection these days. However, I still have my uterus, and then I don't want to go for further surgery to get rid of my uterus. And therefore,、uh, I cannot get legally recognized in Japan. And、uh, I have a female partner. However, in Japan, same sex marriage is not allowed. Therefore, although I am with my partner for a long time, I cannot get married with her. There are so many、uh, transgender people in Japan who don't want to go for、uh, any surgeries. However,、uh, in order to get legally recognized, they go unwanted sterilization. Fumino san, could you tell us about how well the transgender community is understood in Japan? When did you first learn about what it would mean to be transgender and realize that that might apply to you? When I was young, I was、uh, watching TV and realized that、uh, among the entertainment business, there are some people who, who are like me. However, I didn't really understand what、uh, transgender、uh, is, and then I, I didn't know if I am really that kind of people or not. But in mid 1990s, the world GID, gender identity disorder,、uh, was、uh, introduced into Japan. And then there were some news reports on people who went on surgeries. And then at that time, I was a junior high school student and realized I am also a transgender person. And then、uh, afterwards, the special act on、uh, gender identity disorder was introduced in Japan. And, and, and then also, there was one very popular TV drama called Kimpachi Sensei,、uh, where one of the characters was a transgender person. So that's also one of the reasons why、uh, the existence of transgender people、uh, is recognized in Japan. So I believe that there, these days, there are many Japanese people who understand that there, there are transgender people. However,、uh, in Japan, those people are recognized as. As, a, as someone who has a disorder, and that is a problem.そう、当事者によっても捉え方が、え、違って、障害だという風に捉えている当事者もいる。あ、あまり、あの、まあ、いろいろとこう学んでいけばそういった人たちがいるんだと
いうことで。When I came out, my family couldn't accept myself. And then,、uh, however, they learned、uh, gradually, and then they understood the existence of transgender people. And then now,、um, I am very close to my family. My friends and my family are the best supporters、uh, for me. In 2006, when I published my Double Happiness, I think that the, the Japanese society received this book、uh, very positively. However, I think that acceptance was、uh, that.、Uh, They have to accept these people because they have disorder.、Uh, however, uh, these days and gradually, step by step, I, I think society's acceptance of transgender people is changing towards、uh, that there, this is a human rights issue and therefore、uh, we treat transgender people equally. But it is a step by step you know,、uh, situation. Kanae san, does that square with your understanding of Japanese society's understanding of transgender people? Uh, yes, I do. The Japanese public is changing, and then their transgender people are gradually seen as an equal member of the Japanese society. However, this 2003 special act on GID really prevents the society to change in a major way. Still, the law exists. I mean, the, the only law exists in Japan to treat the transgender people. Is you know, treating them as a, as a people who is having gender identity, identity disorder. And this needs to be changed. If this law changes, I believe that their society would change in a major way. Could you tell us more about how Japanese society treats transgender people, like in terms of discrimination or pop culture visibility? Yes, still, unfortunately,、uh, transgender people are. Why do we discriminate it in the schools or at、uh, workplaces and other daily lives? Human Rights Watch did a research on you know, LGBT school kids, and like many other countries, LGBT kids were facing、uh, a lot of、uh, discrimination, bullying, and so on, you know, bullied and also forced to wear uniforms with,、uh, that doesn't、uh, reflect their gender identity and so on. And also, In Japan, there are no anti discrimination laws on、uh, soji,、uh, sexual orientation, gender identity. And that's one of the reasons why the widespread discrimination on transgender people are still seen, yeah, particularly in you know, workplaces and elsewhere. And also, within the Japan's pop culture,、um, there are a lot of celebrities who are、uh, transgender people. However, they are seen as、uh, they are not really you know, treated equally as uh, other uh, celebrities. They are more often seen as people who are laughed and then funny. And then、um, that's one of the reasons why、um, their you know, understanding of transgender people as an equal member of the society is not still widely accepted among the Japanese public. Fumino-san, is there a lot of solidarity between lesbian, gay, and bisexual people and the transgender community in Japan? In the past, the community for transgender people and the community for gays, lesbians, and bisexuals were rather separate. However, in 2011 and 2012, around that time,、uh, the world LGBT was also introduced to Japan. And then after that, I think that the, the two communities got closer and closer. And then these days, We have a really good solidarity with,、uh, among, among all the LGBT community. Trans people, including myself,、uh, 
have been working together with with other community for their same-sex uh, marriage. And also, uh, gay, lesbians, bisexual community also has been supporting trans um, people's issue as well. So we are supporting each other. Human Rights Watch has condemned this law and forced sterilization for trans people around the world. I'm wondering what you say to people who support laws like this or don't understand why it's a human rights issue. In 2016, UN Special Rapporteur on Health and on Torture uh, wrote about this uh, special act uh, to the Japanese government. And Japan's Ministry of Health wrote that, that the government believes in this medical model and, and there is a need for objectivity and certainty so that the trans people needs to go for sterilization. But first, sterilization is a grave human rights violation and condemned not not only from Human Rights Watch, but around the world. I mean, human rights groups as well as uh, World Health Organization. You know, more than uh, 15 years has passed since this law has, has introduced in Japan and then uh, Japanese society has been changing. And then this is really the time for the Japanese government to uh, revise this law and then put an end to their forced sterilization of, uh, of uh, transgender people. But as well as there are some other discriminatory uh, requirements within this law, which includes the medical model of uh, forcing transgender people to be diagnosed as gender identity disorder, as well as uh, they need to be single and then without children under 20. I mean, those are all very discriminatory requirements. And then the transgender people needs to be recognized uh, based on their gender identity in Japan as well. Kanae-san, are you optimistic about reforms or repeals to this law? Oh, good question. <laughs> In the long term, I am optimistic. However, whether it is going to come in the near future, I cannot be optimistic yet. The Japanese government needs to be urged you know, and pressured uh, in order to make steps in, a, in an urgent manner. Because this is the you know everyday issue for transgender people, and then it is affecting their everyday life at this moment, and then this needs to be revised you know urgently. Fumino-san, what would it mean to you if this law were repealed? I personally want that there is a sterilization is not a requirement for legal recognition. For me, the biggest change is going to be that I can marry with my partner. Fumino Sugiyama is co-chair of Tokyo Rainbow Pride and author of the memoir Double Happiness, which discusses his experience as a transgender man in Japan. Kanae Doi is the Japan Director for Human Rights Watch and also our translator today. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about streetwear. It's seen in fashion around the world and in Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. From graphic tees to tech wear, streetwear can be seen in fashion around the world. Recently, Worldview's Galli Abdullah spoke with David Rasul Robinson of St. Alfred, a sneaker and streetwear boutique in Wicker Park. They discussed Chicago's place in this global phenomenon. When you hear streetwear, perhaps the first cities you think of are New York, L.A., maybe even Tokyo or Paris. But what's the scene in Chicago? I'm Galilee Abdullah for WBEZ's Worldview. I recently talked about streetwear with David Rasul Robinson. David is a general manager and buyer at St. Alfred, a sneaker and streetwear boutique in Chicago's Wicker Park neighborhood. So let's get started. David, what exactly is streetwear? That word gets thrown around a lot, especially in my my world, my realm of what I do. And first, me being me, I would look at the actual word street and wear and the interpretation for that. In that instance, literally, that's pretty much everything that people wear, you know, where we wear to go outside, wear as we are on the streets. Originally, I mean, streetwear in my realm and in the work that I do could be just any independent kind of homegrown brand or company with no backing. But Really, in a greater sense, I feel, quote-unquote, streetwear is a reflection of the streets. You know, throughout history, for better or for worse, what has been dictated as cool or in or fresh or whatever is usually dictated by the streets. And with that is often a sort of expression out of you making the most of what you have. Also playing a have and have not in that aspirational where you want more. You may want those higher-end brands or designers or, or things like that, but you are making the most of what you have, whether it's you're starting with a t-shirt brand or a hat brand or whatever, that sort of basement, grassroots, bare bone start, which we've seen has grown into a multitude of things. But uh streetwear for me definitely has roots in skate, has roots in hip-hop, has roots in Uh, punk, and even years before my time, you know, where you would see sort of almost these quote-unquote tribes of people that, okay, if so-and-so is wearing this shirt or wearing this band tee or or wearing their boots like this or their hat like this, it's like, oh, they listen to this, so they're about this, so they're part of this, and then there's that connection. Now, it's a global thing, you know, so streetwear to me is not something that is easily defined but it's something that is ever-changing, ever-evolving. And I, I like that, in a sense, because that is exactly the culture. Ready? I, I definitely think, quote-unquote, streetwear is at a all-time high as far as the popularity. These days, I've noticed a few things, not only with friends, but also customers. Uh, you have people that want some of those highly sought-after releases, you know, by various brands, but just can't get it or they refuse to pay those secondary market prices. So then they'll either make something themselves or they'll take a item and kind of add their own twist on it. You know, like a classic or a blank canvas item, like a white and white Air Force One low. You know, somebody may want a off-white Air Force One or a another collab Air Force One that they may not be able to get their hands on. So they'll be like, you know what, I'll just 
freak my own Air Force One in my own way, and it beco- then it becomes a one-of-one, one, you know, or I have a variety of friends that may customize Air Force Ones for other people, you know, may dye them for other people to kind of add their own take and twist on it. And to me, that's been a lot more interesting because then it becomes that much more unique person by person or group by group. The other thing that I've noticed is that people that may want some of these current or recent releases but can't get them, they'll look back in time on a few things. And while the masses may be focused on whatever's going on right now, they'll kind of look back into the archive some things that people may not be checking for and kind of freak that. To me, a lot of streetwear, fashion, it ebbs and flows. And like history, it repeats itself. background on St. Alfred and what David does at the store. St. Alfred is a Chicago-based clothing and footwear boutique. We opened in 2005. When we initially opened, it was, I'd say, about probably 98, 97% footwear, little clothing. Uh, Now, at this point, I said we're about 50-50 footwear clothing, maybe 60-40 footwear clothing. Because we have a very, very small team, so a few of us wear multiple hats. Uh, me, I am the general manager of the store. I am also one of the buyers, one of the photographers, and kind of chime in here and there. A uh, little bit of marketing, a little bit of, you know, chime in on some design aspects when we have collabs, things of, of that nature. some of you may wonder, what exactly does a buyer do? David explains the job and the travel required, sometimes outside of the U.S., to purchase shoes and clothes for St. Alfred. To first speak on it for those unfamiliar, because honestly, before I was put into that role, I didn't know what a quote-unquote buyer does. This is also important. I want a lot of younger listeners that may be listening that want to be or want to do some of the things that I do that they see people, you know, my peers do, but aren't quite sure how they may fit in the industry I'm in. And one of those is a role as a buyer. And pretty much what the buyer does each season with each of the brands that we carry. And we typically do this six to eight months in advance each sort of season. We'll either travel or meet with some of the various brands that we carry in the shop. So often the shop has me traveling to Los Angeles, sometimes New York, sometimes Tokyo, sometimes Paris, for example, with Nike and some of the other footwear brands. We may meet them at their headquarters or a brand showroom. And that is obviously based in Chicago. Sometimes we will have to travel, whether to Cali or to Beaverton, where Nike's headquarters, just using them as an example. So, uh, but basically on those trips, for example, we carry a brand called Undercover, a Japanese brand by Jun Takahashi. So with him, he used to typically show in Tokyo. Now he mainly shows in Paris during Paris Fashion Week, typically during those buying trips. So at the appointment to see that seasonal offering, we can physically look through the garments, accessories, 
oftentimes, you know, with my coworkers that I'll travel with, you know, I do the buying with two other guys. If I'm not making that trip, then those guys are also. And we'll typically try it on, kind of take a few photos, make some notes. When we come back, we'll kind of brainstorm and mock up a order for that brand, for that offer for this season. Buying for a streetwear boutique is not just about what's considered trendy. It's also about the community that boutique serves. One question that we get a lot with some people that come by the store is, what is our target customer? What is our target audience? That's the thing. There's no one set or one type of customer. We have kids in elementary school, high school, all the way up to men in their 60s, 70s, 50s that will shop for or stop by or order with us, especially in the role of the buyer. It's equal parts us being aware of what's out there, whether we may like it, may not like it, may personally want it or may want it for the shop, but then also being aware of what's in and what people are checking for. And then also just the overall aesthetic of the shop and our own aesthetic individually. So it's kind of a mix of all those things. It's not completely us just buying what we like because we probably wouldn't still be in business. And we also at the same time have to give the market and our customers what they want. And another addition is also introducing certain styles, brands, silhouettes that may not have been, you know, around and maybe an introductory thing, like with us being a top tier partner with a lot of footwear brands, for example. So say there's a release, a limited release on a shoe, a new style that a brand may want to introduce to the marketplace. They'll tap us to kind of intro that because we're, we're called a energy door or a lifestyle door. So people, you know, may see it at St. Alfred versus a big box store. They may be that much more open to it or intrigued by it if they see it on our shelves versus in the mix of a big box store or a mall store. Right now in streetwear, one of the biggest trends, techwear. Techwear or utilitarian wear or performance wear, whatever name or umbrella you want to give it. To me, I feel like Chicago is the best place for it, given the unpredictability and the variety of weather that we have, uh, often cases um, in the same day. I mean, even coming here, like I didn't know if I should wear something waterproof if I should bring sunglasses, if I should bring a hoodie or a jacket. So with that, there's definitely that demand and just the broad awareness of brands like Acronym, of Arcteric Valence, of Stone Island, Nike's ACG collection, you know, Outlier, 10C, et cetera. The customer's gotten a lot more aware of those brands and a lot more savvy. For me personally, I'm a fan of all the aforementioned and it's encouraging to see. I mean, we were the first account to carry acronym in Chicago, and we were invited to carry them years ago. But at the time, we didn't quite think Chicago and the customers were ready, and we didn't want to just bring it in being hasty. So we, even though we had the access to it, we held off for a little bit, and then we slowly brought it in. I joke often with customers that we're we're not a museum. We encourage people to come in, 
try things on, pick up the garment, feel them, ask questions. And to me, the original tech wear starts with the military and just how those pieces were made or created and how that seeped into civilian life and how people may wear, you know, whether it's something like an MA1 jacket, M65, etc., onto some of the more experimental garments. But outside of the military, to me, modern-day tech wear starts with Massimo Asti, who's an Italian designer in the 80s, and with CP Company, Left Hand, all the way going into Stone Island and what they've done and them pushing the boundaries of experimentation and performance wear and utilitarian wear. So tech wear, I feel, has become a lot more widespread. Thank you to David Russell Robinson and the St. Alfred team. I'm Galilee Abdullah for WBEC's Worldview. I wanted to mention a uh, story, uh, the, 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 some stories that we're going to be telling on uh, tomorrow night at the Chicago Cultural Center. I'm going to be there and with some friends from StoryCorps, and StoryCorps has a great event lined up. It's Stories from This Sanctuary City. It's a live event featuring stories and voices of Chicagoans reflecting on what the city provides for refugees and people who come here. There's going to be music, there is going to be poetry, and then, of course, there are going to be StoryCorps stories, and we'll be talking with some of the people involved in the stories. Partners include Organized Communities Against Deportations, Community Activism Law Alliance, 90 Days, 90 Voices, the website that features uh, immigrants to this country and their stories, and Community Links High School, the high school in Little Village, which has a couple of the people featured in the stories that will be there tomorrow night at the Chicago Cultural Center on 78 East Washington Street. There are RSVPs at the Facebook site of StoryCorps. Look for StoryCorps Chicago on Facebook and give us an RSVP and come and find out about what's going on in this sanctuary city. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the Supreme Court decision on the Muslim ban. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.